Let's get into the Bible. We're uh, continuing our series. We had a little break, but we're back into our series in Romans today. Uh, so we're on, up to Romans 9 and Romans 10 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, if you want to turn to Romans 9, that would be great. And uh, I'll just pray as we turn there. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do in our lives. Thank you that you love us with an unconditional, everlasting, unfailing love. And Lord, we just praise you for all we've heard this morning already, all you've spoken to us this morning. We thank you that you are here, Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are here. You are the God who is here. Not the God who is absent or the God who is far off, but the God who is close. And Lord, thank you for the Bible, your words spoken to us. And Lord, we take this seriously this morning, this next uh, chunk of time, Lord, that we want to hear you. God, we want to grapple with what you're saying, but Lord, we want to hear you for ourselves. So I pray for each one of us, Lord, that our hearts will be open, uh, our ears will be (laughs) alert. And Lord, we would just hear all that you want to say. So come speak, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great. So the first eight chapters of Romans have been pretty epic. Um, can anyone remember anything about, <laughs> this, let's make it as broad as possible, about the good news, the gospel, that's what the series is called, the gospel of the good news, the gospel of God that we've heard of so far in the first eight chapters. Um, just, if you can, shout it out, and hopefully a few people will hear. So let's hear a few things, come on. The faith of Abraham, yep, yep. We need faith like Abraham had faith. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Just shout a few of the kind of benefits, the glorious things of the gospel in Romans. Anything else? Salvation, the gospel, salvation for all who believe. Come on. I'm in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Two or three more. Come on, there's loads, so. Adopted into God's family. We're justified by faith, not works. Let's have a final one from someone. Wow, the present suffering is nothing compared with the glory that is to come for those who trust in Jesus. That's just, they're just a few of the things that we've looked at. There is, there is riches and riches and riches. And uh, the end of chapter 8 kind of reaches a climax. Um, let's just read the first few verses of chapter, uh, sorry, the last few verses of chapter 8, because it kind of, it, it, chapter 8 is sort of the climax of the, of, of that section of the letter, and there's so much good stuff, and the end of chapter 8 is kind of the best of the best, really, where it says, no, in all these things, in all sorts of suffering, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor thing, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you think, wow, Paul, what a great place to end. End of chapter 8. Eight chapters are long enough. For, this is a long enough letter already. Just end there uh, and we can all be happy. Go home and no preachers have to struggle ever again at what they're going to preach. Um, <laughs> in this. And, uh, but he, this is halfway through. There's another eight chapters still to come. And he goes um, in chapter 9 from a shift, both in content, because he goes from the shifting content of the glories of the riches of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ to... Basically, chapters 9 to 11, all being about the place of the Jewish people in the purposes of God today since Jesus has come to earth. 
There's a, ch- a shift in, that's quite a shift in topic, although there's, there's been reference to Jew and Gentile, don't get me wrong, this is a kind of major shift in terms of the focus. And, but also there's a shift in tone. You can't get much more ecstatic and, and enthusiastic and full of joy than those verses we've just read in Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 9, you can't get much lower and more sad and in more anguish than we'll see Paul is in these verses in chapter 9. So let's just read um, chapter, chapter 9, verses 1 to 16, and then we're going to jump to chapter 10, verses 5 to 17. So a bit of a chunk, uh, but let's read this together. So straight on from what we've just read. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is definitely the truth. He's saying it three times. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and sisters, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though... The word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because because they are because they are sorry, not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said About this time next year I, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, sorry, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we're going to jump through to chapter 10 and verse 5. There's lots more we could read and talk about, we'd have time. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? 
So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It's a fairly, I mean, it's a fairly meaty passage. Uh, there's a lot in there. We're not going to cover everything and we've missed out bits as well. So uh, we can talk about it more in depth. If you want to meet one to one for a coffee, that's fine. Um, but um, the question to ask at the beginning, beginning really is why is Paul in such anguish at the start of chapter nine? Three different ways he says that he's in anguish. Um, he, he's uh, exactly what does exactly does he say? Remind myself. He's in great sorrow. He's in unceasing anguish. I wish I were accursed and cut off from Christ. That that's big language. He is he is in a really really anguished place. And the reason is because Paul is a Jew. He is an Israelite, and his fellow Israelites have the majority of them at this stage have rejected. The Messiah, that is the chosen one from God, Jesus Christ, who is God's son, come to earth. And they have not believed in him. They have not believed that his death and resurrection are the, are the promise, are the things to which the whole of the Old Testament have been pointing to. And they have rejected him. And so he knows that they are lost without Jesus. And so he's in anguish. And right at the outset, I want to say to you, if you... Do not believe in Jesus Christ. If you have not yet put your trust in the person of Jesus Christ and look to his death and resurrection as all sufficient for your salvation, then I am in anguish for you because you are lost without him. Because Jesus is the only way to be saved. Jesus is the only one to give you meaning and purpose in life. He is the only one to eternal salvation. And so I, I plead with you, as we, as we go through this morning, consider, is this something which I can accept for myself? Is this something which actually I can step into and receive all those benefits we've just been talking about, which are on offer for you this morning? But equally, those of us who have already put our trust in Jesus, my question to you at the outset is, are you in anguish? Because each one of us will know people, friends, family members, work colleagues, even people who are just walking past on the street who don't yet know Jesus, who aren't yet, haven't yet entered into that salvation, and we should be in anguish for them. Many of us I know are, but I know at times my heart grows cold. I know at times my heart is, is a little bit indifferent as I walk down the street, as I pass person after person who I know doesn't yet know Jesus, or the majority of whom don't yet know Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm indifferent to those people. And it's because on the whole, my life centers around me very easily. And my comfort and, and even my own personal spirituality and if, if, how am I doing, how am I doing, or even how's the church doing, which are good questions, important questions. But actually, what about the, the, the thousands, the millions around us who don't yet know Jesus? Because as soon as our lives centre around loving God and loving other people, I believe something of this anguish will start coming into our hearts. Because we're less focused about ourselves and we start saying, wow, we see through God's eyes. You know, God's a God who's in anguish. He's a God who weeps over those who don't yet know him. He's a God who, who's, who, 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 who desires all to come to know his great salvation. And so Paul's in anguish. But in verse 6, he moves from this place of anguish to this, to this uh, 
kind of rational reasoning through what is going on with the Jewish people. So first of all, it's about emotion, and it's about getting a heart, for, as God has, for these people who don't yet know him. But now he starts reasoning through what's going on here. And that's what the rest of chapters 9 to 11 are all about, and that's where it starts getting pretty confusing, um, to be honest. <laughs> and, uh, but the, the, the key question that's underlying all of chapters 9 to 11 is this. Has God been faithless in his promises towards the people of Israel? That's the implied question running throughout. I think, in fact, in chapter 11, he, he, he says it explicitly as well, but it's implied here in chapter 9 and verse 6. The answer, he says, most definitively is, in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, God's promises to the people of Israel, his word to the people of Israel, has not, have not failed. And you might say, well, the majority of us here, some of us will be, the majority of us here aren't Jewish. And so, does that really have any impact on us? Yes, it does. A lot of impact. Because if the promises of God in the Old Testament to the people of Israel have failed, then what, what reliability do we have for the promises of God that we've read about in Romans chapter 1 to 8 for Christians? Maybe one day you'll say, yeah, okay, I'm for you. The next day, I'll, I'll, I'm not for you anymore. I'll be against you. No, God is a promise keeper. God never goes back on his promises. And so Paul is, is wrestling with this in this chapter. And he's saying, no, it cannot be true that God has not kept his promises to the people of Israel. So what else is going on here? And that's what he starts outlining. And God is faithful to you. God keeps his promises to you. Praise God that in Christ all these benefits that we've read about cannot be taken away from us. Because God never turns his back on those he has called to himself. And the argument, the summary of the argument in chapters 9 and 10 is this. It's like two sides of a coin, both of which stand in tension to one another, and which, in the mystery of God, he understands, but we don't. So I'll just put that as a caveat at the outset. Uh, but the, the two sides of the coin are this. Chapter 9 is one side, and that's the, that's the divine side. That's God's side, if you like. And it's all about God having mercy on people. The only way for someone to become a part of God's people is because he shows the mercy. And he works through that person after person who he's chosen from within Israel has been a beneficiary of God's mercy. He has chosen them out of Israel. Not all Israel are Israel, he says, but those who he's chosen out of Israel, who he's had mercy on and called to himself. That's the divine side of how someone becomes a part of God's people. Chapter 10 looks at the human side and human responsibility and says from a human side it's about having faith in God and now explicitly in the person of Jesus Christ, God's son. And those two things, you might think, how does that work? How does, how does, how does at the same time, it's all about God choosing people and having mercy on someone. That's how they get saved. That's how they get caught up into his family. And how, at the same time, is it about a human responsibility of choosing God and having faith in God? The answer is, I don't know how those two fit together. But Paul isn't stupid. I mean, you can't write Romans and be stupid. And, and, uh, and yet he places these quite knowingly side by side. Chapter, he writes chapter 9. And then he writes chapter 10. And it's like us when we write a letter. We might sort of get a bit, you know, work, we sort of, he's sort of working things out in his brain as he's going. But he can, he's quite happy for these two things to be side by side as he writes them. And so we must be as well. And if we start to try and resolve, overly try to resolve the tension between these two sides of the coin, I think we start getting into a dangerous place because we start trying to be God when we're not God. Elsewhere later in Romans chapter 9 it says God is the potter, we are the clay. And if we start trying to be the potter and work out the way that God should work in this world, then we're getting on dangerous ground because we're simply clay. 
And so we're going to zoom in first of all on chapter 9 and then and the divine side and then zoom in a bit more briefly on the human side in chapter 10. And so Paul starts his defence that God hasn't failed in his promises to Israel by going through the early history of the people of Israel. So he starts by talking about um, Abraham's sons. So Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And Isaac was the child of promise. He was the son of promise through whom God's purposes would continue. And so Isaac, if you like, was the chosen son um, who, who... on whom God had mercy, and then it talks about Jacob and Esau, and it says here, quite um, hard for us to get our head around, but let me explain, it says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, when we read that, we think, wow, how can God hate someone? And uh, we need to realise that the idea of, the the, the word hate is, is actually a, in, in the, it comes from Malachi originally in the Old Testament, and it's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. Um, it's less about emotion. It's not about emotion as we would see hate and love, but more about an action. And so he's saying, he, he loves, God loves everyone. God loves the whole world. <laughs> but he has, in, in his action, he has chosen um, and had mercy on Jacob and not on Esau. That's what it's saying. And you might still think that's strange. Well, stick with me. Uh, we're going to keep working through this. But that's, that's how God... Um, has chosen to work out his purpose. He's had mercy on some and not on others. And, uh, but notice how, how, much the sh- how much stress Paul puts on the fact that it's not anything to do with Jacob that makes him a better qualified candidate for the mercy of God than Esau. What does it say? It explicitly says um, in verse 11, well, verse 10 it says, before... Um, Sorry. In verse 10, it says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had, doth, had done nothing, either good or bad, God chose Jacob. And so it's not about someone being um, a bit more worthy and someone else not being worthy. And sometimes we can think about that. We can think, well, maybe um, I'm, I'm a more worthy candidate than someone else. Or maybe I'm not worthy enough for God's love. But actually, it's nothing to do with us. The whole point of chapter 9 is it's all about our salvation. It's all about the mercy of God. It's all about God showing mercy, God showing mercy, God showing mercy, God showing mercy. He is the one who initiates, and we are simply the recipients. And so, if you're a Christian here this morning, don't try to make yourself more worthy. If you're a Christian here this morning, know that God has reached out to you and he has pulled you out of the pit that you were in without him. And he has, he has come down to you before you dusted yourself off and made yourself more presentable. He got hold of you and pulled you out. That's what this is about. That's what, is what the term that's often called the doctrine of election, where God comes and grabs us and takes us out, which is something we cannot do ourselves is all about. Elsewhere in Ephesians, Paul says, when we were dead in our sins... God made us alive in Christ. Dead people can't make themselves alive. God has shown mercy and he has resuscitated us. He has resurrected us in Christ Jesus. And that's, that's, it's it's an amazing truth when we actually get our heads around it, that God is so merciful that he does what we couldn't do. And if you're not a Christian, please don't think, well, Maybe I'm not someone who's worthy of God's mercy, or maybe I'm not one of those people who can receive God's mercy. We can all receive the mercy of God. And so if you're not a Christian here this morning, my plea to you would be, say, Lord, here I am. In all of my mess, in all of, all of the chaos of my life, God have mercy. And you can be guaranteed, if you pray that prayer, he will have mercy upon you. However 
dark or however dirty or however rubbish you think your life is, God has mercy. Paul says that in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he was the worst of sinners. He persecuted the church and yet it says that the grace of God overflowed on him, overflowed to him and God had mercy on him. I love those two expressions. The fact that God has mercy on us and the grace of God overflows to us even if we're the worst of sinners. God is a merciful God. And the reason why we can be so sure that God will have mercy on us if we say, Lord, have mercy, is because God himself, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, came down to earth. And 2,000 years ago, he died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken, why have you rejected me? And we've got to realise what's going on here. The one who has for all eternity been the chosen one of God, God's son, God's beloved son, the, the eternal chosen one, became a moment in history the rejected one uh, for us. And so that now we can come in Christ through his death on the cross and become the chosen ones in him. It's an amazing exchange that happens that is open to all people that we can become chosen ones, undeservedly, mercifully, incredibly mercifully from the hand of Almighty God because he himself became a rejected one for us. And so that's where Paul sort of gets to as he works through in verse 13 that not every Jew ethnically is, is part of God's people because not every Jew has, has, has received, has been a beneficiary of this mercy of God. And so there is bound to be a question going through some of our minds. And Paul knew there would be a question going through some of the people who were reading or hearing this letter in the first place's minds. And so he asks it explicitly in verse 14 where he says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And his answer, as he often says, by no means. And so, and then he goes and explains himself a little bit. Um, <laughs> by no means. So the question some of us are asking maybe, I don't, this doesn't seem fair to me. This, this doesn't seem just to me, that God would have mercy on some people and yet others he doesn't seem to have mercy on. How does that work? That seems unfair. And Paul realises that's a question we'd ask. And he says no. And he says no. Before he even explains himself, he says no, because he knows that God is utterly just. In the very nature of who God is, he is 100% just. He cannot do anything that is unjust or unfair. And he is 100% merciful. He cannot do anything that is not merciful. And so somehow in the mystery of who God is and how his salvation purposes work out on this earth, God is working out justice and mercy 100% and fully at the same time. And so he says, by no means. And then he sort of explains himself. I say sort of because the way he explains himself isn't the most... um, explicable uh, let's put it that way and so, and so he says is there justice on God's part by no means you might think well let's have a nice easy answer that makes us all go to sleep nicely and he says he says to Moses I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion so then it depends not on human will or exertion but on God who has mercy in other words his answer is it just depends on God and the fact that he is merciful and he can, be, he can be merciful on whoever he wants to be merciful because he's God. I hate answers like that. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't work with my brain which wants to get everything fixed and logical and reasoned out and yet that's what I said at the beginning. Somehow Paul seems to be living with and we need to live with this mystery whilst knowing that God is fully merciful and fully just. And the passage he actually refers back to 
is in Exodus chapter 33. And the context of this story with Moses, who was a guy who, was, who led the people of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, out of slavery in Egypt. And he led them into the promised land. But in this period of time, they were stuck in the desert. It was quite soon after they left the promised la- uh, left slavery in Egypt. And the people of God, you might think, yes, we're, God's had mercy on us. We should just celebrate and just, and just enjoy God and just l- follow after God. But what's one of the first things they do is they construct a false god. They construct this golden calf. What idiots. Sounds a bit like me. And they can start this golden calf. And, 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 and they say, oh, here is your God who brought you out of Egypt, this calf that's made of gold. And they reject the one true God. And God says, I've had enough with this people, understandably. I mean, seriously. I've had enough with this people. And Moses stands in the gap and he pleads with God, will you forgive them? And incredibly, God has mercy on them and forgives them. But in the context of the dialogue between God and Moses, there's this question that Moses asks in the middle of it, which sounds a bit weird, but fits as you read it. And it says, show me your glory. And God's response to Moses' prayer to show him his glory is this. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's a bit of a weird answer at first. But actually, if you think about it, what Moses is saying, show me your glory, show me the fullness of who you are, show me what makes you God, God. And God's response is, I am free to do what I want because I am God. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I am God. He says elsewhere in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. As I said, Paul uh, refers back to the Old Testament when he talks later on about God being the potter and us being the clay. God is a merciful God. And somehow, in how he works out his merciful purposes, it is the most merciful plan there could be. We've got to believe it. You know, God has a bird's eye view. He, 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 he's in heaven and he sees all history and all eternity. And he is all knowing and all wise and all loving and all merciful. And from that perspective, he makes decisions. And he, and he works out his salvation purposes. And from our very limited perspective as clay, it looks, God, surely there would be a better system for you to work out your salvation than the one you're going by. But actually, that cannot be true. It is not true. It might look true because we're very finite and we only see what's ahead of us. But from God's purposes, it's not true. God's perspective. And then one day, we will see Jesus face to face if we're followers of him. It's going to be a beautiful, glorious day. And I believe may not be the first question, but one of the questions he answers at that point is he will give us this view. We will, it says we'll reign with him and somehow we will, we will have a view over all of history and we will see the choices and the decisions and all that God in his sovereign power has done in the history of the, of the universe. And the response will be, won't be, oh God, that was unfair. It'll be to fall on our knees and say, how merciful you are. How merciful you are. Worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because the reality is, we're like Israel. We don't deserve anything from God. The fair thing would be for us all to be the rejected ones, for us all to have nothing from God, for us all ultimately to, to face an eternity without him. And yet the very fact that God has stooped down and in Christ Jesus has raised some of us from the dead. Why it's some of us and not all of us, God knows his purposes, but he's raised some of us from the dead. Is amazing mercy, is undeserved mercy. We should have nothing from him at all. The question shouldn't be, 
how can God not extend mercy to everyone, but rather should be how on earth can God extend mercy to anyone? Can I have five volunteers, please? There's one at the back, there's two, there's three, four, five. It's, it's probably, yeah, yeah, Ali, yeah. And we probably don't, uh, yeah, I think it was five, yeah, good. Um, this is probably an unnecessary illustration, but I thought I'd break up a heavy talk <laughs> by getting some other people involved. So, um, right, if you guys could just stand over there, please, together. Okay. So these five people, as lovely as they seem, um, <laughs> are, have, have, have got together and they've decided they're going to rob a bank. So what I'd like you to do, please... <laughs> What I'd like you to do is, is put on your best pre-bank robbing look you can give us. So let's just have a look. <laughs> you look very happy about it. That's good. Yeah, okay. Great actors. Maybe, <laughs> maybe stick with what you're doing. Um, <laughs> and so, um, you're off. So if you just understand here for now, if you just kind of do it as some sort of like, I know you want to be like natural about it. <laughs> you're gonna, can you start journeying over this way together towards your bank robbing mission? <laughs> and then I know them and I'm their friend. And I, I get in front of them, and I say, please, please, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. What are you doing? Don't do it. This is, this is just the wrong thing to do. And they ignore me. They, in Stephen's case, slap me. And they, and, they, <laughs> and they walk past me. But I just go, and I go after Ali, and I get him out and take him out. <laughs> and I take Ali out. Um, and uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't roll the bat because I've taken him out. He's, he's annoyed at the time, but he's happy now. And, and, and the, the other four go ahead and rob the bank. And then long come the police, and they get caught. Sorry about that. And, and, and they're sentenced and uh, condemned to their punishments. And so off you go. Thanks, guys. You can sit back down. Whew. It's good to get some exercise. Okay. So the question we need to ask there is a very, very, very imperfect analogy. There's all sorts of holes in it, but don't. That's the point of analogies, isn't it? To, to pick, not just to pick, enjoy picking the flaws of analogies. Um, but I think there's something helpful in it, in that... <laughs> Give me a chance to work out what I'm trying to say. Can it be said that I acted unfairly towards those four who robbed the bank? I don't think so, personally. Um, but <laughs> uh, I, I pleaded with them, I told them about what, what the consequences were, and yet they continued to do what they were going to do. And uh, got, they got the sentence, in the end, whatever that was, that they deserved for their, for their crime. And, um, and Ali was just an undeserved... Um, it, I didn't choose him because he had the same name. That was a bad choice, actually. Um, it, was, it was totally like random choice. The first person nearest me... The person I thought I could rugby tackle the easiest. No, no, no. <laughs> the person nearest me. And, um, but he, he, he was just an undeserved recipient of my wonderful mercy. And, um, and in a... It, in, in a sense, there's something of that. We are all responsible for rejecting God. We all have chosen, we, 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 we have chosen to live a life like Israel did with the construction of the golden calf, where we build idols, we reject God, and we choose to live selfishly without him. And so we should all deserve the crime that those guys got, the, sorry, the punishment for the crime like those guys got. And yet, amazingly, God has stepped in and he has shown mercy to some. And one of the big, there's a number of differences between God and that analogy, but one of the, one of the big differences is that God's choices aren't arbitrary. Mine was arbitrary, it was just whoever was close to me at the time. Um, and, but God's, God is not an eeny, meeny, miny, mo God, okay? He doesn't just think, well, we'll go for him and then we'll go for her. And we'll, 
He has this amazing, as I said, perspective, and he works out his purposes in the way that is most merciful and just and glorious to him all at the same time. And how that all fits together, I don't understand. And you don't understand. Don't tell me you do. <laughs> and, uh, but somehow it does. John Stott, um, who was a, a pastor and a, a theologian um, the last century, really, says this. If, if, anyone is, if anyone is lost, the blame is theirs. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's. This antinomy, which had to... I don't know what that meant. Apparently that means paradox. This paradox contains a mystery which our present knowledge cannot solve. There we go. That's what I've been saying. I should have said it in a few words. But somehow, somehow, there's this mystery in God, but it is merciful. He does show mercy. And and, and, and the fact that he shows mercy to anyone is wonderful, wonderful truth. And so the big point from chapter 9, is that God's mercy alone is the cause of anyone becoming a part of the people of God. But then we get to chapter 10, praise Jesus, because chapter 10 is deliberately put there by Paul and by God in his inspiration so that we don't go down the wrong track. Because in chapter 10, as we read, it is all about faith in Jesus Christ. And so from a, from a divine, eternal perspective, there is something about God choosing and to show mercy to people and that's how they're saved. When we get to our everyday life and how we should function in the here and now, which chapter 10 is all about, it's all about believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so he says in verse... Um, in verses 6 and 7, a kind of weird verse about not going up to the abyss and not going down into, sorry, not going up to the whatever he goes up to, into heaven, <laughs> not descending down to the abyss, not, 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 not ascending to heaven, not going down to the abyss. Um, he's, what he's trying to say is, Jesus Christ has already come down. Becoming a Christian, being saved, being part of the people of God isn't about making yourself more worthy. It's not about climbing the ladder. It's not about ascending up there and finally we've made it. No, Jesus Christ has come down already. And it's not about trying to get right down there and deal with our sin, because until we've dealt with our sin right down there that's brought us really low, we can't really be welcomed by God. No, because Jesus Christ has already gone right down there to the lowest of the low by dying on the cross and being stuck in a grave for three days and then rising from the dead to triumph over death itself. And so Jesus has already done it. That's what those verses are basically saying. He just refers back to the Old Testament to make it complicated. But Jesus Christ has already done it. And so we now just have to receive by faith what he in his great mercy has done for us. And so... A few things about what it says about being saved by faith in these verses. Number one, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 13. In other words, this isn't, just in case you thought it might be from chapter 9, it isn't some sort of exclusive elitist club that Christianity is. Christianity is open to all. It's a hospital for sinners. It's for all people, no matter how low we feel we are. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I love the fact that Jesus went after those people who no one else went after. And he often said, your faith has healed you or literally saved you. Uh, The word there can mean a whole number of things, but it includes salvation. Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. And he says that to lepers. And he says that to prostitutes. And he says that to to, um, uh, tax collectors. Your faith has saved you. There was a woman who was bleeding for years and years and she reached out in desperation. The doctors couldn't do anything and she touched the garment of Jesus. And he turns to her and says, after a little bit of a baptism forwards, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Maybe some of us feel like that woman. We've tried all sorts of stuff to fix our lives. <laughs> Nothing seems to be working. Reach out and touch the garment of Jesus. So your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Secondly, the content of what we're to believe isn't simply, yeah, Jesus was a nice teacher, Jesus lived and we like Jesus. Hooray. Actually, believing in Jesus to be saved is about realigning our whole lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It says we've got to um, believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and we've got to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord. In other words, we've got to accept that Jesus is the one true God who, who created all things and came to earth and died on the cross for us and rose from the dead for us. And if we can, if we can surrender to those truths and surrender our lives to his lordship, you are guaranteed that you are saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And thirdly, it says that there's an internal and an external dimension to this faith. And so it says not only do we believe in our hearts, but we're to confess with our mouths. And so, yes, there's a work that God does as, as, as kind of internally say, yeah, I believe this, but we also need to confess that there needs to be an outward change in our lives, a, a declaration. And baptisms are an amazing way of doing that, of saying, yes, as, as I know I wasn't here, but as you had last week here, and we're going to have again in a couple of weeks here, yes. I believe I'm saved and I'm going to publicly declare it. And so if you haven't been baptised, there's going to be a baptism service in two weeks again, just because we like baptisms. And, and uh, so please do talk to one of us about that, if that's something you want to do to say, yeah, I just want to, I've been half-hearted and I want to be all in and confess this publicly. And so for some people here this morning, the practical response to all of this is to believe. Believe that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. Give your life to him. It's the best decision you will ever make. But for others of us, we've already believed. And that's where those final verses that we read in chapter 10, I'm not going to read again, are so important. Because, and we're going full circle now as we draw to a close. We've got to carry the merciful heart of God to a broken, hurting world out there. It starts with having anguish in our hearts. But Paul moves in chapter 10 talking about the practicalities of how that works out in action and that is we need to speak the truth how can people believe if they haven't heard and how can they hear if no one tells them about it and how can people tell them about it unless they're sent as this morning there's a sending from almighty god i'm sending you but that's pretty doesn't mean a lot but almighty god sends you you know jesus before he left the earth said as the father has sent me so i am sending you and then he breathed on them his holy spirit And God wants to breathe on us his Holy Spirit and send us into this world saying, actually, we have a merciful God. We have a merciful God. I don't understand the intricacies of how that merciful plan works out, but we have a merciful God. And I am an ambassador. I'm a spokesperson for this merciful God. I'm going to carry his merciful heart and I'm going to speak the good news of this gospel that is for all people. So are you going to have beautiful feet where you are? You're going to have beautiful feet in your workplace and in your family and with your friendships and wherever else you find yourself because God says, I'm calling you to partner with me. And it's liberating. It's liberating. Because if we don't think it's all about God's mercy that saves people, then we start getting all caught up in, oh, evangelism is all about me. And evangelism means I need to persuade people to believe in Jesus. And if I'm not persuasive enough, maybe it's not going to, it's not going to work. Or if, if, if I miss an opportunity, maybe that's going to be their eternal destination ruined forevermore. Or, um, you know, actually this is liberating to say it's, it's only God who saves. God is the one who saves. He is a merciful God. He just says to us, I can do it on my own. 
but I'd love to partner with my people. So will you partner with me? Will you step on board, carry my merciful heart and speak the good news of my gospel to those around you? Let's stand. If the band could come up, that would be great. There was a lot in there and I'm sure some of us are a bit confused about that and, and I'm confused to be honest and that's fine because sometimes the Bible is confusing. And I think one of the most dangerous things we can do is say actually we have all the answers and we've got all, all the dot, dot, the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And it's, actually sometimes God, you're the potter with the clay. God, what I do know is you are more merciful than I can imagine. And what I do know is I am an undeserved beneficiary of it. And you call me to speak it to others. And so, Lord, I pray, come by your Holy Spirit as we worship you now. Would you come? Would you give us your merciful heart? Would you give us joy in your salvation? And would you give us boldness in declaring this to other people? Lord, we want others to enjoy the riches that we've had bestowed upon us. As we sing this, if you feel you want prayer for anything, for what I've said or anything else, the, the ministry team will be up, um, maybe to my left. Um, and, but particularly, if you, it's for anything, but particularly if you feel, I feel like there may be at least one person here who just says, I, I'm not sure I'm a Christian. Maybe I've never committed to, to, to I've never said, Lord, have mercy on me. <laughs> I want to have faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you this morning, please come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. Come and talk to each one of the ministry team uh, members. Or maybe some of you have said, I've, I think I've done it, but actually I just, there's a lack of assurance in my life that this is actually done. Maybe it's something like baptism or something else that you just need to do just to say, actually, I want to I wanna seal the deal, as it were. I want to I live in the assurance of my salvation. So if that fits with you, I'd love to pray with you. Um, if you want to pray for anything, please do come up and ministry team members would love to pray for you about that as we worship.